You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's webinar, Psychological Coping During the Coronavirus Outbreak, Practical Strategies for Frontline Staff. That's a mouthful, hey? (laughs) Um, I'm your host, Sarah Kift, and so that's the face for the voice right there. Hello, good morning, everyone. When you're using the question section, that's me who you'll be chatting to. Today, we have Dr. Heather Fulton. Um, She is an incredible person and actually a good friend of mine, and she is also, most importantly for this webinar, a registered psychologist. She's currently working as a supervisor of psychiatry resident psychotherapy training at Royal Columbian Hospital. She previously worked at the Burnaby Centre for Mental Health and Addiction, as well as maintaining a private practice. And she has been studying, researching, and working in the area of concurrent disorders, particularly with vulnerably housed individuals for over 15 years. She also is a past volunteer of the Calgary Drop-In and Rehab Centre, a large facility in downtown Calgary that offers various levels of housing support, meals, essential health services, as well as employment training. And Heather, you have a wonderful mix of frontline experience Um, theoretical knowledge and approachability. So I'm really glad to have you here today with us. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very honored to be here. All right, I'll proceed with the slides. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) So the agenda that I sent out uh, in advance is my plan today is we'll talk a little bit about coronavirus and how it's impacting our mental health and especially the unique factors uh, that frontline shelter workers face and frontline workers in general. Then I'm going to spend the majority of our time talking about some practical tips on coping. And I'll spend a little bit of time towards the end on some tips for managers on how to support staff with coping. I know I had mentioned in the agenda I was going to make a specific section for people who already might have anxiety, trauma, other mental health challenges. But just based on time, I've actually kind of folded that into the general tips. Uh, But feel free if there's other questions about this. I'm happy to answer it uh, since I wanted to really leave us quite a bit of time for Q&A. But of course, I'll be spending some time a little bit on resources for folks as well. All right, so let's just get straight into it. So this coronavirus and how it's impacting our mental health. We're fortunate in that there's a number of different agencies like the International Red Cross Foundation, as well as this interagency standing committee, that they've worked quite a bit already with frontline workers in pandemics. So we actually already know quite a bit about mental health concerns that frontline folks are going to face. So one of the first ones uh, that really comes up is actually stigma. And so It's been really lovely to see sort of the cheering of frontline workers at 7 p.m. And I haven't seen as much of the sort of stigma of people who are working frontline just yet. However, I do think it is something that we can expect. Uh, 
Uh, and so if this is something that you might experience already or perhaps in the future, recognizing it's it's not going to be personal, uh, but when people are fearful, especially in a sort of disease uh, pandemic situation, it is not unusual that people who are working the front line will experience some social stigma and perhaps even some isolation. That's that's not personal, but does tend to happen in these kinds of situations. Often mental health concerns that people experience is also the fear of infection. So uh, having increased monitoring and hypersensitivity to one's own bodily sensations. I'm definitely aware of it's spring where all kind of some of us have seasonal allergies. But, you know, now that tickle in your throat comes with a bit of increased threat, right? You're a bit more aware of, hey, I feel a bit fatigued. Is this is this a sign that maybe I've become infected? Is this is this something to worry about? And it really feel feeds into some of our fears and anxieties about this. And what what does that mean? What's going to happen in the future? Often people who are working on the front line have experienced a lot of fear about infecting others, especially their loved ones. Uh, so having children at home, partners, um, perhaps other ones that they live with, older adults uh, that might have different health conditions. And this is a real fear that uh, people carry around with them, as well as a fear of infecting others. So you're a helping professional. You want to help others. And so this fear of what if I do something that I unknowingly, say, infect or bring potential harm to others is a fear that many of us can really carry in our day to day as we work through the front line. There can also be the challenge of feeling isolated and separated from loved ones. And this might be a way to kind of mitigate the fear of affecting others. So many people are sleeping in separate bedrooms or areas of their homes. Uh, so it might be a way to, to cope with some of the previous fears. But sometimes it's just that lack of social contact. And especially in this pandemic where we're really emphasizing the social and physical separation, it becomes it becomes bigger. There can also be the pressure from loved ones to not work and questioning why, why are you working? Why don't you just quit? And those of us who are working frontline can really experience a lot of guilt of just even the need to work, the need to have to pay the rent. And I, I have to do this. I don't have a choice. Or we have guilt around our choice to work in this sector right? And to be doing what we're doing. And we can feel a lot of guilt about this. And Heather, I didn't mention before everyone, but Heather is actually presenting from the hospital today where she has been mandated back to work herself. So she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> Great. And oh, sorry, I forgot to mention that. So my office is actually close uh, to a helicopter pad. I don't think we will have a helicopter uh, that ha comes during this presentation. But just in case it does, we might have to pause for about 15, 20 seconds uh, for that nose noise to kind of damp down. But hopefully we'll be OK during this. So one other um, kind of frustration that people can experience is frustration with others. And so often people who are in pandemic situations can be frustrated with unclear recommendations from authority figures like, say, public health. What am I supposed to be doing? Do I wear a mask? Do I not? Is that helpful? Is it not? And be really frustrated with this lack of certainty and lack of clear guidelines. 
We can also feel a lot of frustration and dissatisfaction with the policies and decisions in our own organizations about, say, personal protective equipment or when and how someone goes into quarantine and who does that and who gets tested. So that would not be uncommon to experience as well. And then also, especially in pandemic situations, it can be frustrations with others' adherence to recommendations. So people who are not following social distancing or colleagues where they're doing hygiene practices that you would not do yourself or you don't feel are consistent with the, what their recommendations are. That hand washing wasn't really all that long. And are you now putting me or others at risk as a result of what you're doing or disagreement about what is the recommendation? And one thing that's, this is not in sort of these guidelines of the Red Cross or interagency uh, committee, but based on my experience uh, and sort of experience talking to a lot of other frontline workers, I thought this one was relevant to put in, where um, those of us who are kind of working frontline, there can be sometimes some real frustration and envy of our friends, family members who are at home, they're posting on social media about, oh, I'm so sick and tired of spending time with my kids or family, or, oh, it's so hard to work from home, where there are those of us who it's like, gosh, I wish I had that problem, right? I wish I had that luxury of working in an industry where I could work from home or to have the frustrations of being with my kids at home. And Envy can really be a, a thief of em empathy. When we don't feel safe, when we don't feel heard or understood, it can be really hard to be an effective helper or to be sympathetic to others. So I thought that one is one that's really typical at this time for people who are working on the front line and kind of I don't I don't see a lot of writing out there about it, but I think is really relevant for us. So this is not an exhaustive list of what all the different experiences might be in terms of mental health. Um, if there's ones that you think I'm really missing or you'd really like me to comment on, please add it to the chat now. And we can certainly add that to our Q&A section as well. So let's talk a little bit more about a couple other factors that might influence our levels of distress and coping. So this pandemic or this so global disaster, it's really unique and it's quite different from other disasters. I think most of us, when we think about disaster planning or if we had thought about a disaster that's going to happen in our community, many of us thought about say, fires, earthquakes, those kinds of things where it would be short term. You know, we put in work, we go really long hours, we rebuild, we clean up debris and then it would be done. Right. And we know we know sort of what it looks like. We have that efficacy of I do this time and then we'll get through this disaster together. This is different. We've kind of got this invisible enemy, right? We don't know where this virus is. We don't know when it's here, when it's potentially infected us or our loved ones. The real sort of recommendations are do nothing, like say, don't, don't go out, don't kind of spend time with people. And also, we don't know when it's going to be over. We don't know when it's here. We don't know what it's going to look like. And we don't know when this is going to end. And all these are real recipes for kind of feeding into some, some anxiety and some distress, uh, because it is just so different from, I think, what many of us are really prepared for and are imagining when we thought about disaster planning or what this might look like. The other thing is because this pandemic is just so widespread and global in nature, it is 
I feel almost impossible to escape it. You walk down the street, all anyone is talking about or conversations you overhear on phones and that thing, it's all about coronavirus, right? You go on to Facebook or Instagram, it's all about coronavirus. We have to recognize that anxiety really has this contagiousness, right? Even though you might get a moment where you're feeling okay and you're feeling maybe a bit more calm and relaxed and things are manageable, you know, someone wants to talk to you and or you go online and that's, that's all you see. And it can kind of really increase your anxiety a bit more because that's all everyone's talking about. It's hard to even just get a break from it. I had to um, <clears throat> chastise my family because we were on a WhatsApp chat, chat together and mm-hmm. I was hoping it would just be what they're making for dinner, etc. But they just started sharing links and opinions and ideas. And I was like, yeah, I can't do this here. <laughs> We're seeing it yeah. everywhere else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It bleeds into everything. Things where usually they might be sort of your break from, you know, work or your break from this stuff is here it is again. And it's all it's all people want to talk about. Um, and so it can be really tough to, to even just get that mental uh, separation from it and mental separation from work because it's work related. So it's hard to then do our usual self care of having complete breaks from work when it kind of bleeds into everything else. The other thing that's really important to recognize is our own uh, trauma and mental health inter- uh, histories influence our coping. Often people talk about this in terms of vulnerability factors of if I'm anxious, potentially this might be sort of an adding uh, to my distress. But I'd also really like to point out that people who've been through trauma, who had have experienced mental health difficulties, they also have a whole lot of insight and a whole lot of resilience and coping factors already because they've, they've been through really tough stuff. We've been through these things. Um, they're from worst case scenarios, or we've been through these bad things where we have a lot of coping and resiliency as well. So I don't want to put this out as just a vulnerability factor of now you might have more distressed or worse coping. I don't think that's actually the case, that I think these can be real strengths and resiliency factors as well. Then of course, social and economic resources, they can really realistically, they buffer some stress, right? If you are working and you're also uh, feeling like your housing might not be secure or you're not sure how you're going to pay your next bills, that adds on to your level of distress despite everything that's going uh, or including everything that's going on at work. And then other life stressors. Yeah, we're having this pandemic, but that doesn't mean the rest of our life isn't on pause. We may still have that divorce pending. Our difficult relationship with our teenager is also still happening. In fact, now perhaps that stress uh, sort of volume knob is actually a little bit turned up, right? Because everybody's a little bit more stressed. And so that I kind of call it the volume knob. It's everything is a little bit louder. That's also happening as well. And so we have to recognize their contributing factors. So today I plan to really focus more on managing anxiety. Uh, There's so much we could talk about in terms of mental health and this uh, coronavirus, where I thought just based on the timing right now, let's focus on anxiety, where if I gave this presentation, say, during um, a surge or, you know, perhaps after as we're all kind of trying to resume some semblance of normalcy, this talk would be very different. But I feel like right now, many of us, we're kind of in this waiting game, right? We're being told by experts, this bad thing is going to happen. 
We don't know exactly when, but it's going to happen. We don't know exactly what it's looking like. We're all kind of just waiting. And I think that really feeds itself to anxiety. So I thought that's what I'd focus more in on today is the anxiety management as opposed to, say, grief, hopelessness, some of those other things. So to understand anxiety, I really like this formula from Christine Podesky. There's different theories and different ways to think about anxiety, but I really like this one because I think it gives a very clear understanding. Why am I feeling this way? Then what can I do about it? So anxiety, it's a little bit like a formula of sort of these three things, likelihood of a bad thing happening. So likelihood and the bad thing and also our ability to cope. So let's imagine uh, someone who might be afraid of dogs. If I am not afraid of dogs every time I pet one, it's probably because I don't really think a dog's going to bite me, right? The likelihood is low, so I'm not that anxious. But if you think about someone who is afraid of dogs, when they pet a dog, they think the likelihood of them getting bit is actually probably pretty high. So that's when they feel like they have more anxiety, right? This likelihood of a bad thing happening is high, so of course I feel anxiety. Now, if we think of someone who's not afraid of dogs, maybe they might say, okay, well, this is a young puppy. The likelihood of me, say, getting nipped uh, might actually be high. That likelihood is high, but the bad thing's going to be not so bad. It's going to be just a little nip or a mouthing. It's not going to be like a really bad bite. So I actually don't feel all that anxious, right? The badness is not that bad, so they don't feel anxiety. Where someone who, again, might be afraid of dogs is, I imagine a bite, a bite's going to be really bad, you know, will will uh, potentially be really serious. If I think it's going to be really bad, again, my anxiety is increased. Let's also think about someone, let's say I'm a police dog trainer, right? And I'm going in to train a dog where we're going to do a simulation in one of those big puffy suits. I might say the likelihood of a dog biting me is very high. And that dog bite is going to be really bad and quite severe, right? But in that situation, I probably don't feel a lot of anxiety because I have beliefs in my ability to cope. I'm going to have my big puffy suit on. I'm going to have a bunch of colleagues that are there to help me. I've got probably an emergency training word with this dog as well. I feel really good about my ability to cope in this situation. So again, my level of anxiety is not going to be all that high. Whereas someone else with higher levels of anxiety, they might have lower um, estimation of their ability to cope in a bad situation. So that's understanding just that anxiety formula. Let's look how it plays out with this pandemic. So first of all, in terms of likelihood, there is some uncertainty here, right? We are being told by experts, okay, the likelihood of say a surge or this uh, virus coming into your community is high, right? But we also want to recognize that sometimes with anxiety, we can overestimate the risk. And we have to also think about the risk of what, right? And sometimes our perception of risk is not actually equivalent to the actual risk. So, for example, lots of people talking about um, the coronavirus, of everybody's worried about this. Therefore, this must be sort of a much more certain situation where that actually isn't reflective of risk of just the availability of people talking about it. Risk, that comes more from some of the research. The problem is here is we don't have a whole lot of research. So again, this likelihood, it seems high at this point in time. We don't know exactly what it is, 
But because that likely it's high, it makes complete sense then why many of us feel a lot of anxiety in this situation. The next thing to think about in terms of this pandemic is the bad thing happening. Many of us are hearing stories out of Italy or New York of this uh, coronavirus kind of when it arrives in our community, it's going to be catastrophic. We don't we don't actually know that. Right. There's a whole lot of uncertainty here. We don't know what is it going to look like, what is going to happen, who's going to be affected, what are the severity of the symptoms. Right. So there's uncertainty there and uncertainty typically lends itself to quite a bit of anxiety. There is a risk of us catastrophizing. So us kind of thinking of only the worst case scenarios. And also this sort of anxiety formula makes a whole lot of sense when we think about our bodily sensations, where many of us, where we're going along, we might have a tickle in our throat where, you know, a year ago, we never would have thought anything of that. But right now, we notice that tickle in our throat, and we think, holy crap, right? Is, is this the coronavirus? Is this how it starts? Right. And so that attention um, and sort of reinterpretation of is this a threat? I think it probably is makes a whole lot of sense then why we're feeling increased anxiety. And then in terms of the situation, with anxiety, many times we can underestimate our ability to cope. Um, and so in this situation, we're thinking worst case scenarios, we hear different stories, we can also underestimate our ability to cope in this particular situation. Or we might feel a real lack of autonomy and control over the situation of what my organization is doing, what resources I have available. And when we feel this lack of autonomy and control, we have increased anxiety. So now what are we going to do about this? So some tips I have is, first of all, understanding that role of uncertainty, right? And understanding that some of the coping mechanisms that have been really successful for us in the past are maybe not actually so successful in this situation. So often when we face a situation with uncertainty, like I'm going in for hip surgery, right? Researching would be really helpful. Let me talk to people who've had this experience. Let me go and research on Google. That would be really helpful. It helps me feel more in control. The problem with coronavirus, though, is there is so little that is known. And so it's actually less likely to help in the situation and can actually lead us to more uncertainty because we're aware of how much we don't know. Right. So the real recommendation here is, yes, you want to stay informed on updates and advisories from legitimate sources. But you probably want to keep this time limited uh, and just to say 30 minutes or 60 minutes a day. I find sometimes this tough too. And so what I would say is what's really helpful is if you're researching, if you're on kind of reading social media, those different stories or talking to say friends and families about coronavirus is really asking yourself, okay, is this actually decreasing my uncertainty? Is it decreasing my anxiety? Is this actually helpful, right? Or am I leaving this conversation, leaving this sort of internet search and kind of click hole? Am I actually having more anxiety and more distress, right? If so, then okay, maybe it's time to limit it. This is maybe not so helpful to me right now, even though I might have that urge of, hey, wait a second, this is actually not helpful. And that can sometimes be helpful in deciding, is this a helpful or less helpful strategy? The other thing I wanna talk about is uh, other ways that we cope with uncertainty. So stockpiling is one we've certainly seen a lot uh, on 
the media and we might be experiencing ourselves, right? Because it's so contagious. I may not have felt the urge to say buy 20 uh, rolls of toilet paper, but man, now I see everybody else's. I'm kind of wondering, hey, is toilet paper going to be there when I need it, right? Do maybe I need to actually stock up a little bit more? Uh, so there's this real contagious uh, effect to kind of get a sense of control and get a sense of safety. If you maybe don't relate to this stockpiling as kind of a behavior coping for you, the tips I'm going to suggest is think about them with other less helpful behaviors. So many of us uh, at different times in our life, we're trying to change some behavior. So whether it's kind of uh, eating, uh, eating in response to emotions, smoking, using substances, and we're in recovery, these kinds of things, the strategies I'm going to suggest for this, they could be applied to these other less helpful behaviors. Again, we could easily spend an hour on this, but I'll just give a couple quick tips. So certainly when I'm talking to someone about, you know, compulsive buying behavior, um, whether it's related to the pandemic or other things in their lives, it's just focusing, hey, wait a second. For me to buy, you know, this two, two, two kilogram bag of, you know, evaporated milk, is that really necessary? Like, what do I need versus what I prefer can sometimes be helpful? Like, do I need to go to the store or do I just want to? And I think it can also be related to some of our emotions, especially as frontline workers. We can feel really guilty if I'm not home or I'm I'm not kind of being present uh, with my family. So if I'm out already, okay, I'm going to buy this, right? Because it makes me alleviate some of my guilt or some of my distress. And so thinking about, hey, if I'm going to buy this or if I'm going to smoke or if I'm going to eat or that kind of thing, am I actually doing this to cope with an emotion, to feel more in control? Is there some unmet underlying need here instead that actually might be dealt with better through a different coping thing, a different coping mechanism rather than this one? It can also be really helpful to kind of future cast, to play that tape forward, right? How will I feel after I buy this? I might feel reduced anxiety, but is that going to be really reduced anxiety in the long term, right? It might feel really good to say comfort eat right now or to smoke or do whatever it is that I've been maybe trying to change. Yet kind of playing that tape forward, right? How will I actually feel? And then sometimes just delaying acting on an urge of just delaying that time uh, to say, hey, maybe I'll try out something else first. And then if I still really want to do this, okay, I'll do it. But sometimes the delay acting on an urge can give us a bit of that mental space that's really helpful. The other thing that can be helpful for managing uncertainty is really recognizing that sometimes our perception of risk is not equal to the actual risk. So we're human beings. Stories about people and situations, especially those that are similar to us, will always affect us more than numbers and stats, right? So a story about someone, you know, in New York City uh, or a shelter worker in New York City, that's going to influence me and my anxiety a lot more than whatever Dr. Bonnie Henry is going to tell me about actual risk and stats, right? It's also helpful at this time to sometimes think about, okay, the stats, that is what sort of matters um, right now in terms of actual risk, although it is limited info. Um, But reminding myself just because everyone's talking about this doesn't necessarily mean that is reflective of risk. It means everyone's worried, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the risk is actually increased or, or potentially decreased. 
the thing that's also helpful is sometimes, again, there's this lack of information, right? And that can lead to rumor and speculation. And that's true about the coronavirus and how it operates, but also just our organizational policies and procedures, where lots of people, when we don't know about something, we talk to each other, there's rumors, we speculate, that can cause a lot of anxiety, distress, frustration, and recognizing, hey, wait a second, what are the facts of the situation? Is this opinion, rumor, and speculation, or is this something that has actually happened or is happening? And so recognizing what is rumor, what's opinion, versus what are the facts of the situation can be really helpful. One thing that's also really helpful when we're thinking about, you know, this bad situation potentially happening is many of us, of course, we go to the worst case scenario. Of course we do, right? We want to be feel like that'll help us be prepared. That is valid and certainly don't push that away. But it's also really important to think about what is the best case scenario too, right? Not just jumping to the worst case, but what is the best case scenario? Both are valid. Both may be equally likely potentially. And both are important to think about to have that more balanced view. When we're being faced with a lot of uncertainty, it can be helpful to increase our certainty in other areas of our life as much as possible. So including a routine and structure when possible, when there's so many decisions to be made and there's so much uncertainty in my work life, I don't want to think about even just what outfit I have to put on, right? I just want that already planned out in advance. I want my lunch already picked out just because that extra decision making is just it empties my emotional cup further. So just as much routine and structure to kind of increase certainty when there is so much uncertainty everywhere else can be really helpful for our coping. And the other thing with uncertainty to really remember is that we don't unfortunately have a crystal ball, right? I want to eliminate the uncertainty in my life. I just want to know, is my family going to be okay? Are the people I serve going to be okay? Are we going to get through this? And ultimately, I don't have a crystal ball. And so I have to recognize, yes, I can do what I can do, what's in my power and control what I can control. And yet, there's some stuff that we just can't control. We don't have a crystal ball. The future is uncertain. And sometimes recognizing what is in my control, what's not. I'm never going to be completely certain about something in the future because it's in the future, can sometimes actually be really empowering and can give you a lot of freedom uh, because it frees up that space for you, right? Of, hey, I can't actually control this. All right, let's focus on what I can control. Heather, I just want to say I appreciate you talking about structure and routine. And it just reminds me that when I worked in an emergency situation all the time on the front line, um, we often think about structure as this very disciplined kind of day. But I worked in a place where um, I was never had time to myself. I was always, I served 600 people a day and it was intense and overwhelming. And when the weather permitted, I would take my 15 minute break and I would walk around the corner. There was a little Chinese uh, botanical garden that was free. And I would, I would only have 10 minutes, but I would take the time to go and do that and sit by the pond and look at the fish for five minutes. And that was enough 
that I knew that every day I was going to do that, it helped me cope with all of the wild craziness that was going on in my work. Um, so I just want to encourage people. Sometimes we have an all or nothing. You know, right now there's all these posts about how we're going to restructure our lives, repaint our kitchens, homeschool our kids, you know, start a new exercise routine, all of that. But um, sometimes it's just about holding on to how you make your coffee in the morning um, or when you take your break at work or what you do to just relax for five minutes. Maybe it's a breathing exercise. And those are the little things that really help get us through the day. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I know for me, some of the big things for me is a going home routine of being able to drop off some of that baggage and stress from work of I find I can't just immediately go home. I need to have a little bit of a drawn out routine of how am I going to sort of unload some of that baggage and stress baggage throughout uh, the day. Um, what is the, th- the thing that works for me, whether it's podcasts, going for a little bit of a walk with the dog or whatever is, I think, for me, a going home routine is really helpful to kind of drop off some of that stress and that that builds up throughout the day um, in a really stressful position. Mm-hmm, for sure. All right. So we talked a little bit about how do we cope with the uncertainty? I also want to spend some time on understanding this lack of control and lack of autonomy, because that can really contribute to a lot of distress that we feel as well. And so the first thing to recognize is sometimes the more we struggle against uh, this or especially with our feelings can actually backfire. So noticing when we have thoughts like this shouldn't be happening or they shouldn't be doing this or things like I shouldn't be feeling this way is often that usually increases the feeling when I try and suppress the emotion or don't feel that way, don't think that way. What happens for most of us is then we actually feel it more. So at best, it's ineffective. More typically, it's actually going to increase the emotion or the thoughts that you're trying to push away uh, and not feel. And so what's important then is to really to these are valid. They make complete sense. Right. And yet by pushing it away or not thinking about that, we have to we have to do something different. So my suggestion here is really this technique from dialectical behavior therapy called radical acceptance. That's called radical acceptance because it means total and complete. And so it's total and complete acceptance of this is the situation. And sometimes when I talk to clients about this, and I certainly know for myself is sometimes they try it and they go, well, Heather, you know, what the F, like, is this supposed to make me feel better? The situation is horrible. You know, how is this making me feel better? And it's true. This is, this is not going to make you feel better, right? You're accepting the facts of the situation, but it gives you a starting point on what you're going to do to feel better. You're not saying the situation is okay. You're not saying acceptable. It's not a big deal or that you're helpless here. You're just accepting the facts of the situation of, let's say, um, you're someone where I thought I was going to have a wedding uh, this spring or this summer. It is clearly not going to happen the way I thought it was, right? It would be completely natural to think this shouldn't be happening. This is totally unfair. But then also to feel a whole lot of guilt of I shouldn't be feeling this way. There's bigger problems about this, right? If I spend a lot of time with those thoughts and dwelling on what should or shouldn't be happening, I'm going to feel a lot of distress, right? And it's not really going to sort of solve a whole lot for me where it's radical acceptance would be like, all right, this is happening. 
this is happening. It's not how I'd like it. It's not my preference, but it is happening and it makes complete sense why I feel this way. Okay, so what am I going to do next? What is in my control? What can I do here, right? So it's just accepting the facts of the situation, not saying it's okay, not a big deal, that there's nothing you can do, but it's just accepting the facts. This is what the organization has decide, decided. This is the reality with personal protective equipment. Yeah, might not be how I want it to play out, but this is what is happening. So what am I going to do next? So then, as I kind of alluded to already, we really want to focus on what can I control, right? I may not be able to control my boss's or manager's decision or what public health decisions are, uh, but it's where can I have influence, right? I can choose to express sort of my dissatisfaction or concerns to my boss or manager, right? I can choose to do these different things. I can choose to say, do really good hand washing procedures myself uh, or express my concern to say a colleague or someone else about theirs. Ultimately though, I know I cannot control another person's behavior. I can try and influence it, but recognize ultimately that's another person's behavior. I cannot control that. So instead I focus on what I can control. It's kind of like that really great um, AA um, sort of serenity prayer of kind of focusing what I can change, what I can't, the wisdom to know the difference. The other thing that's often helpful in these kind of situations is to focus in on your values uh, and also the meaning in this situation. So having worked in sort of homelessness, mental health sector quite a bit, um, I'm going to swear here a little bit. I hope that's okay. It's Many totally people, fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Many people in the sector, we've been through a lot of shit, right? We've seen a lot of shit. We've been through a lot of shit, right? And we do this work for a reason. There's other ways that we could be making money. And there's probably other ways we might be able to make more money. But we choose to do this work for some really important reasons, right? Like, I've been through some shit. I don't want anyone else to go through that. Or maybe there's other people who are going to go through this shit. But I don't want them to have the experience that I went through in time to get resources, so connecting with those values of why is this important to me? Why do I do this work can really help you get sort of this is the meaning of this situation. The other thing that can be helpful in terms of determining this meaning of the situation is what do I want to tell people in one year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, what was I doing during this pandemic? How did I help? How was I a helper? Right. That can sometimes Give us that sense of sort of control, autonomy, uh, and meaning, and finding meaning in this suffering. So that can sometimes be really helpful as well. And then sort of some other pieces is having compassion for ourselves and others. And there's a lot of different com definitions of compassion out there. So I want to give you my definition, which is really it's empathy plus understanding. So again, I'm not saying it's okay that that person said that thing to you, or it's okay that maybe you used after many years of not uh, using, but it's about understanding of, hey, why did this happen, right? I am stressed, or that person's stressed, I'm doing my best. And from the understanding, rather than blaming and shaming or sort of villainizing, then kind of coming up with, all right, what's going to be a more effective strategy? Given this, given I'm so stressed or given that this is not how, say, Joanne, my colleague, usually acts, you know, kind of having some compassion and understanding of 
okay, how am I going to move forward? And kind of giving ourselves all a little bit of a break too. We're all scared. We're all just trying to do our best here. Some last practical tips. Often during these times, especially as helping professionals, uh, we can feel like there's no time to take care of myself now. If this is an emergency, right? And yet taking care of yourself makes you a better helper. If that sort of emotional empathy bucket is empty, you're not going to be able to help fill others. You're not going to be able to do these uh, different things. So even though this seems like the last uh, time that you can kind of take time for yourself, take those breaks, this is actually the most important time to have the good sleeps, to have the good nutrition, because it just makes you better helper. There's a reason why airplanes say put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you help another. If if you're not willing to do it for yourself, I would say is do it for the others, right? Do it because you are going to be better. Do your self-care because you're going to be a better helper and more effective for others if you do it that way. The other thing I want to emphasize is many people, again, working in shelters, you guys are often in emergency situations where you do not have the resources that you really need or that would be effective and that you have had to be incredibly resourceful already so many times again and again throughout uh, your careers and throughout your experiences. So you actually already have many coping skills and ability that can apply to this new situation. You're already very resourceful and innovative. And so it can be easy to kind of miss those skills, those abilities, and underestimate those, where I bet there's a whole bunch of strategies and skills that you have that would be amazing that I would never think of, and I'm certainly not <laughs> covering today, but man, I bet you've got them. And so kind of thinking about what are the past times of hardship? What did we do then? How could it maybe apply to this situation here? And then the last tip that I really want to suggest for folks is remember, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is not a disaster like many of us thought. This is much more open-ended. Uh, you know, it can really feel, again, as helping professionals, I got to just go to the max 110%. That is going to lead itself to more burnout where it's like we need a marathon. We need to be paced. We need to take breaks. Because if we're taken out uh, of commission because of burnout or something else, then we're not going to be able to help people. So, again, taking breaks, if you won't do it for yourself, then definitely do it for, for others, right? And this is my job. It is my job to take breaks. And it is my job to, you know, take that 15 minutes and go look at the fish, <laughs> like Sarah said, or to have that walk or to go to bed early, because that is what's going to make you most effective and helpful. So I was thinking and pause here for a couple questions before we move on to tips for managers, but I can also just power through so we have a longer session at the end. What would you prefer, Sarah? Let's just give everybody a second to <clears throat> type in a question if they want, and then, then if nobody does, we can carry on. Um, while you're doing that, I was just thinking about how um, relationships and trust are something that is a coping skill and a, a really valuable skill that we have as frontline workers. Um, so, you know, there's an avalanche of information out there right now from official authorities, but the people that we're serving come to us for help. They're not, some of them 
are not reading the news. They're, you know, they're not connected to the internet all the time. You know, they're just hearing rumor or they're just not in that same stream. And, and, and a lot of them have a distrust of authority. They have a distrust based on trauma or other experiences that they don't connect with bureaucracy and official directives. And that's where our skill as frontline workers is extremely valuable because we have the relationship. And so we're actually best placed to help vulnerable, our vulnerable people that we work with all the time because they will actually listen to us as opposed to um, the official news reports. And so to really lean into those relationships, it's really hard right now because we're all supposed to stay away from each other, but using creative ways to connect and to talk and to make the time for conversation and lean into those relationships that you might have already started building with your clients is kind of our superpower as frontline workers. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I really echo that sentiment. I know doing um, training with healthcare professionals and also my own practice where I think some of the number one biggest mistakes we often make is assuming it's an information gap uh, and that people really just need more information or more skills or more whatever it is, where actually that's usually not <laughs> particularly helpful. People people need a good listening to. Uh, and only then when you really understand, then potentially they might need, need they're missing some information. But I think we really often can underestimate that this problem, this challenge is not actually one of a lack of information. It's a lack of feeling supported and validated and just listened to sometimes. Hmm, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I heard a story the other day of um, an organization in Vancouver's downtown east side handing out food and they were stressed and overwhelmed. And so there was a lineup of people and one of the workers was walking up and down the line yelling, you know, six feet apart, six feet. And it just was creating a situation where everybody was on edge. And it was anxiety producing, but also very hard on that worker in particular. And I just mm. was thinking about how if there's other ways that we can encourage people to practice social distancing if there's ways that we can do that through talking to the clients we see every day and encouraging them to encourage their friends or practicing that in different ways um, it's probably less anxiety producing for everybody yeah and I think sometimes we don't pay attention to what are the important reasons why people aren't right is well if I'm six feet apart especially with food stuff is is someone going to get in line in front of me and then I'm not going to have food at all. Right. Yeah. And feeling really insecure about that. Right. Or, um, you know, I, I'm actually not sure that I'm going to get this virus. I don't, I, I'm not sure I actually buy the six feet. What is six feet going to make a difference? So I think sometimes we get frustrated with why are people, well, people just aren't doing it. They just need to do it where we don't look at the real powerful motivators. Well, why is someone doing it? Why does it make a whole lot of sense to them? And then actually addressing that, right? As opposed to be kind of sometimes give information or make suggestions based on what we think would be helpful, but it's not actually addressing the underlying reasons and motivations of why someone's engaging in that behavior. Mm -hmm. And this was brought up in a different webinar yesterday with a frontline worker, and they were talking about how for a lot of people, they've been through so much shit that <laughs> the coronavirus is just another threat in their cornucopia of struggle of every day 
violence, yeah. trauma, hunger, uh, lack of safety, um, you know, humiliation, whatever is going on for them, um, it, disease, uh, you know, and so overdose. So coronavirus to them is just another thing on the list, right? And so to be aware of that, um, as we're helping people cope and helping ourselves cope to really understand why people uh, might not be practicing what we want them to is important. Yeah. Well, yeah. And some people are like, I've been, been thinking about worst case scenarios and always thinking the worst my whole entire life. So what, here's another one that happened. This is not that big of a deal to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, like you said, this is just one other thing of kind of adding to the huge list of hardships that I have. So, yeah, I'm not going to change a whole bunch because, man, I've got a whole bigger list, a whole bunch of other insecurities that are much more pressing to me right now than this sort of vague possibility uh, in the future. Yeah. Well, let's carry on. And then if you do have questions, um, please feel free to ask them or clarifications. Okay. So in terms of managers is sometimes it's just really important to recognize that everybody copes with stress differently and that this can also vary over time and with different stressors. So sometimes I have managers talk to me of, you know, Heather, we've had this emergency or critical incident and this person doesn't want to talk about it. And I'm really worried about them because they don't want to talk about it. But let's recognize that there's some situations where someone asks me, yeah, I totally want to talk about it. And then there's some situations where I'm like, talking about it is actually the last thing I want to do, right? And so everybody copes with things differently. They're going to behave a little bit differently and it's going to vary a bit over time. So having that flexibility and that sort of patience with people of not everyone's going to behave how you think they maybe should or the how you're expecting. And so just recognizing that and having patience and really take an individualized approach with your staff of, well, what do you need? What is helpful to you? Because what I find helpful may not be what Sarah Kift finds helpful mm-hmm. or what someone else finds helpful, right? So being really individualized and asking people, what do you need in order to do what you do best? What do you need from me? How can I support you? That's going to be really helpful. I don't think actually many of my suggestions for managers, it's going to be anything new that you haven't heard already, but sometimes I kind of putting it more as a bit of a reminder. The other thing is reducing uncertainty for your staff as much as possible. So, of course, communicating regularly and often. There is a reason we see Justin Trudeau every single day. And the same reason that we hear from Dr. Bonnie Henry every single day is that communication regular often is just so important. There can be a real lack of information. And we know from research with frontline professionals during pandemics is that lack of information is a major stressor for them. And that is something that's even related to the symptoms that they experience, mental health symptoms they experience after the disaster is over. So this can be a real source of frustration for helping professionals during outbreaks. So just sharing what you know, even if it's as limited as it may be, and being transparent about that is going to be so important for your staff. And it's, sorry, yeah. I just want to say, you know, sometimes we think that means handing out another memo or printing off more information, but um, there's such an avalanche of information right now. This also means just taking time to connect with your staff every day. Even yes. in the midst of the emergency, <laughs> having that team meeting for five minutes and saying, hey, how's everybody doing? What do you need today? What do you need to know? Do you have any questions? Um, can often be more productive than um, 
giving out another sign or another email. Those are also good, but I recommend as a manager um, myself, I recommend doing the in-person stuff. And it's harder to do. It's harder to find time for, especially when we're on the front line. But it, it is really crucial at this point in time. Yeah, those are all really excellent points. Thank you so much for making them. So uh, kind of just similar to that is explain the why of decisions, right? Even if you may not kind of totally agree with them, just still explain the rationale and the why. And sometimes if you don't know something, then explaining, yeah, being transparent. I don't know why you may not know and potentially when you may know more, right? Is that is also can sometimes be very reassuring for folks as well. The other key piece, because we've talked about uncertainty, but also then, of course, the autonomy, increasing autonomy of staff as much as possible, right? So really giving people opportunities to express their opinions and thoughts on decisions, even if potentially that decision might not be able to be changed, but that they still have an opportunity to be heard and to feel validated and just to express their opinions about things. And they may come up with considerations that that were not considered before might be really important. The other thing is to include them in the decision-making process as much as possible. And I will say, having sort of been a chair or manager, different projects and things like that, it's really hard because often it's like, but this is urgent. There's no time for this. A decision needs to be made now. And I would say every single time that I've had that experience where I'm like, there's no time to consult or that's going to take too long is actually you're going to spend that time anyway right, is you can either be proactive and include people sort of up front, or you're going to have to be reactive, right, of people being unhappy with a decision, having to re-explain the decision or rationale over and over again, uh, or people kind of passively resisting a decision of, well, I don't agree with that. I'll sort of find some way as a workaround kind of thing. Um, so again, even like Sarah was talking about, even just a five minute connect or even just doing a super quick kind of huddle with just who is available on shift at that point in time to just get some way to include people in the decision making possible as much as possible is going to make um, the implementation of that decision and everything just so much smoother. And it's going to be so important for your staff as well. So I'd say, especially when it's Whenever I have the thought, there's no time to do this, that actually is like, I'm going to be spending this time no matter what, right? Do I want to be proactive about it or do I want to be reactive? And I found in my experience, the proactiveness is always just so much better. Even when I'm like, there's no time, it is worthwhile and helpful, even just to make a couple minutes here and there. Uh, the other thing is reminding your staff of the vision, the reason we're here, the reasons we do what we do. What are our shared values and goals of, you know, we're all trying to work towards this. The higher order things can, again, sometimes really help us with our purpose. It's important to show appreciation to your staff, but I would really this is not a suggestion of like saying, oh, hey, you guys all did a great job today. That's not actually going to be all that helpful. You want to give very specific and timely feedback to people. So, hey, John, your work with Lou today, I saw what you did, of blah, 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 blah. That was amazing. You really went above and beyond there. Or, hey, Sherry, I heard from a case manager about blah, blah, blah. And giving that really timely feedback and very specific, that's going to make people feel heard, validated, and actually appreciated for the really hard work that they are doing. 
Then as a manager, I know it's tough because often you folks, they're the last ones to take your break. You're the last ones to leave. You're sort of the last ones to do things. But it's really important in this to emphasize and role model that coping and well-being for your staff to really demonstrate this is a marathon, not a sprint, so that you take a lunch break as well, even though it might be a limited one, but that you take that walk, that you do these other things, that you walk the walk in addition to talking the talk of this well-being and taking care of yourself during this time. It's really important because you set the culture for your organization and you set what's kind of the expectations with your behavior as well. So again, you being a role model, people are watching you. And so it's really important for you to also emphasize and really role model this too. So lastly, here are some resources for staff. I'll go through it somewhat quickly, um, but Anxiety Canada, it has an excellent uh, app that has a bunch of different anxiety coping techniques on there. And they also have some coronavirus specific resources on their website. Here to Help BC has some excellent resources as well and is a good resource for mental health in general. There's the Bounce Back program that's free online and phone coaching for mild to moderate low mood or anxiety. Uh, so that's something that you can enroll in. And I didn't really talk about sort of parents and coping with kids, but the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, they have a really good handout for caregivers about sort of how to work through different anxieties or coping for different age groups that I think is really nice uh, for those of you folks where this is relevant. Some other things, things are changing really rapidly right now in terms of resources. The college, or sorry, not the college, the BC Psychological Association, they are rolling out some psychological first aid sessions that are going to be available to public and frontline workers. So it will be a one hour session that's totally free with a psychologist providing some psychological first aid for people that those details I checked last night. It was not quite on the website yet, but I believe it's forthcoming in the next couple of days. I believe there's some counselors that are rolling something out like this similar as well. So again, these programs and some sort of free psychological support, more of this is coming. I don't have a comprehensive list right now because it's all kind of being developed right now with this week and next week. I think we're going to hear a lot more about it. But at least with the BC psychologist, you can certainly check their web page for how to access this service, which my understanding is will be launched within the sort of next day or two. There's also a Starling Minds uh, coronavirus coping program. So it's, I think, about five sessions and it's online and specific for mental health. And that's freely available to people. And then I also have a colleague in North Bay uh, who developed this workbook based on some dialectical behavior therapy coping skills, and she has made it freely available on her website, and you can access it there. And I think it's a really nice kind of self-help resource of different coping skills. For managers, as you probably know, there's just so many resources out there. So I kind of just selected two that I thought might be helpful. One is the Interagency Standing Committee, Briefing on Mental Health and Psychosocial Support. Page six is one that's specific to frontline staff, things they might be experiencing, suggestions. And then I thought the International um, I think it's Federation for Red Cross, their Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Guide for staff and volunteers during the coronavirus, I thought was also quite comprehensive and very helpful. So I listed that one there as well that you can access. 
And so now I was thinking as we would open it up uh, to Q&A if people had specific questions or ideas that they uh, wanted to share that kind of came up while they were listening to this uh, talk as well. And just as people are formulating those, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Heather. So what's one thing, you know, drawing on your experience, both as a psychologist and a manager and a frontline staff person, what's one thing that you could tell people who are going right back to work after this webinar is over and that they're feeling anxious today? (laughs) Gosh, I think... I'm going to say two things. Sorry, I'm cheating. That's okay. One is just, first of all, be kind to yourself. Um, I think we can put a lot of pressures on ourselves as helping professionals of kind of, I got to, I got to put people first. I got to do these things. I, you know, and people who work in helping professionals are some of the, again, the most compassionate and selfless people in society, right? Because, you chose to do this job, you chose to help others, right? People who are in this profession, it's, I'd say it's more, it's a vocation, it's not an occupation. So it's like, it's more of a calling, as opposed to like, here's just a job to make money. So there's, it's this different, different kind of thing. So I think it's be gentle on yourself. And it is okay. And if anything, it is your job to care for yourself. First, it's not selfish. So be be gentle with yourself. And I guess then the second thing, and this is one that I use regularly in my life when right now, uh, since I'm going through this situation right now, is really focusing on what is in my control, what is not in my control. Uh, Yes, I may disagree with that and I may prefer it to not be happening and I might do it very differently myself. And yet where, where is my agency? Where is my control? Where is my power? Okay, I'm going to focus on that. And that is true, whether it's sort of a family situation, a work situation, a more societal one of distress, and just finding where's my agency, where's my control, uh, can sometimes really help me uh, sort through my distress. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I really liked the way you talked about stockpiling, and that question of what do I need? Like, do I want this or do I need this? And how am I going to feel after I do this thing? After I Mm -hmm. buy this? Another case of toilet paper. Um, (laughs) Okay, so we have a couple questions here. um, And this is actually relevant to a lot of people um, in terms of shift work. So someone is asking about how they work with a 24-7 team. Um, How do they involve people in decisions when they're working diverse schedules and and how do you do you have some ideas for best practices around communication to re- alleviate anxiety when you might not be able to connect or see all of your staff? Oh, oh gosh, that's a tough one. And I know that was something I really encountered quite a bit, like at Burnaby Center, where it's, hey, we're going to make a unit decision um, or a care decision together. And yet I know and say there's going to be another shift and how do we communicate between each other and things. And this is a challenge. So I'm going to tell you some suggestions that I have, but also you're the expert on your situation too. So perhaps as I'm talking, you might actually come up with something even better. Um, So what we did is we sometimes we had that 
meeting where we still had input from staff. And yeah, it would be just the staff who were on site at that point in time. But what we did then is uh, we just sort of took quick notes. So someone was in charge of taking the notes and then it would um, be emailed out to all people. And we'd make sure like it was sort of a special email, like, you know, we have so many, uh, but it's sort of when you're coming on shift, make sure to read this one. Or I think we also experimented with um, sort of like a notice board where it's again, it has to be refreshed regularly. Otherwise you just get sort of, notice board blindness kind of thing where it was okay we're going to make the decision during this shift we'll communicate and to kind of share this was our reasoning this is our plan to the next shift but kind of email us still or share with us your thoughts or experiences as well um, because we just we had a total totally different staff and even the managers were say not present during the night shift so it was tough but because people were rotating through nights and days, we kind of knew, all right, maybe this day shift, you're not there for, but you know what, a future one next week, you will be, right? And so it's just a matter of time and it's it's tough, um, but that communication, that shift handover was also just so important. Um, but that's kind of how we how we did it with a couple things, but we, we tried a lot of different things. <laughs> And we're trying to figure out what works and keep getting that feedback from staff of, hey, wait a second, could we have a notebook, a communication notebook, or do we want a board or know the emails better or just talking to staff, what do you guys think? How can we communicate when we have all these different shifts? Yeah. And the other thing is there's often one or two people, I mean, you said your shift was different, but for me, um, there's often one or two people that have a shift that bridges those other timelines. And oh, yeah? so it would be a bit staggered. So I'd leave at four, but my colleague was there till six and my, the person replacing me was on at four. And so there would be a bridging person. Sometimes we don't think about those people because they might be, maybe they don't work on our team. Maybe they're in maintenance or food service or another part of the team that uh, we don't work with regularly, but they're actually really vital to communicate information to the next shift of people coming in. And if you draw those people in, like, for example, I'll just give you a real example. Um, I worked at a community center and the janitor was the guy who knew everything about what was going on. Um, That's amazing. And because his shift was different. Everybody else had the same kind of shift, but he would be there a little bit after most people went home and a little bit while new people were coming in. And so people went to him to find out what the heck was going on. And so one of the best things I did as a manager was actually bring him into the conversation. Whenever I was changing something, a system or something, I'd be saying, hey, uh, what do you think? Do you think this is going to fly with the next shift? And that sounds weird to do, but actually he was in, incredibly helpful in, in communicating and encouraging people and even giving me feedback about what worked and what didn't. So look for people that you might not necessarily assume um, would be part of your team. That's what I would say. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. So, and someone else is mentioning here um, along the lines of what you were saying earlier, as a manager, they've been keeping in mind the framing of how do I want to be remembered after this is done? And it really is helping keep them focused on what is important during the pandemic. I thought that yeah. was a great suggestion. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I always continue to think of that um, great quote uh, from Maya Angelou. If people don't necessarily remember what you say, but they're going to remember how you make them feel. Yeah. So do you have any suggestions then for peer support at each level? So, you know, how to build something where we're leaning on each other, uh, frontline supervisors, managers, what kind of relationships and peer support can we start to lean into in this crisis? I think part of that to me, I've, it's, it's loaded, right? Because it's sometimes it depends on what is the culture of your workplace and what is the safety, um, there, right? Of, there are sometimes workplaces where, um, people are not going to feel safe to talk to each other because, well, what is my confidentiality, right? Is this person going to, is this going to be gossip, right? Of, you know, oh, well, Heather, she said this, oh my gosh, or will they think of me differently, right? At the same time, I think even maybe it's not sort of a full kind of emotional uh, peer support, but I think there can still be um, a functional support of kind of checking in with each other of just how do we do this job? What's the the best way to do, to do this? Um, so some resources for peer support and some things that people are setting up are some sort of psychological first aid uh, training. So there's some people who are doing that. One thing that we did at Burnaby Center, it wasn't technically peer support, but I kind of feel like it was a little bit was as we noticed, you know, on some of our. Uh, units. Um, people are really distressed. There was always emergencies. We are always kind of running around like chickens with their heads cut off. If it's always an emergency where we're like, we don't have time to kind of stop, talk and do these things because there's always an emergency where it was kind of like, hey, wait a second, let's stop. Let's figure out like if we don't stop and say, why is this? Why are we always in crisis mode? And can we do things differently? Not work harder, not like, oh, do better. It's we're doing our best, right? It's let's work differently. So we ended up creating, uh, after a couple different iterations, we created a sort of a 30 minute learning huddle where we would do this once a week where what is a situation, what is a crisis that keeps taking up a lot of our time, right? And then we just spend 30 minutes where we would brainstorm, why is this problem happening? You know, well, first of all, what is the problem? Cause we'd often sometimes have disagreements about that. Uh, what is the challenge? Why is it happening? And then what are we going to do where people could have an opportunity to share their success stories or things that don't try this. This was a disaster kind of thing where it was peer support and more of what can we do? How can I be more efficient in my job? And it was a real challenge. I'll be honest when we first introduced it, because I think people thought they were going to be told they're not doing a good enough job or they need to work harder. Um, but I think based on their experience, they learned that this this is not what this is about. This is about supporting each other. We have a lot of good techniques and a lot of good things that we're doing, but we don't always share it with each other. We don't share between shifts. We don't know, hey, this uh, healthcare worker versus this nurse, you know, they've got this rapport with this person. This could be more effective or we, you know, we need to change the way that we're communicating about this because I'm spending so much time triple documenting and sending emails everywhere that never get read. We need to do things differently uh, to really reduce some of these fires that we're kind of putting out there. So, you know, 
it may not be sort of the emotional mental health support there, but it was on the practical side, providing support to each other of why is this challenge happening? How can we help each other out? Uh, how can we all have a mutual understanding of what is going on here? That that was something that was really effective for us. So one is sort of psychological first aid. Two is perhaps setting up some kind of problem solving or challenge huddle uh, to provide sort of practical peer support. The other thing is I know sometimes people have set up sort of buddy uh, situations of sort of having a buddy to check in. How you select those people, usually they do it through a bit of random selection. It's a bit tough because there's all people that we connect with more or less. Um, but just sort of having a buddy to check in with how are you doing and kind of having a set list of questions or structure for that. That's, I know, something some other people are doing. Uh, and that's that's an option as well. I think I would think carefully of like, well, what is our goal, right? Is our goal emotional support? Is it practical support? What do our What is our goal? And then what does staff think about that? How does staff think this would be the best way to proceed and really getting their inputs uh, and perspectives on this? What is doable, right? It's not going to add to your workload. Uh, it's going to alleviate uh, the workload because you're alleviating some of the stress or things that are going on. Yeah, I was actually just remembering um, it's a different situation, but it is always an emergency. And that is when I used to be a cook and work in a massive kitchen. Um, our staff loved this because my co-supervisor and I, our shifts crossed each other. But the half an hour before I got off and the half mm -hmm. an hour that he started, we would have a meeting together and we would give everybody a break during that time. And so we'd say, go have a coffee, go you know, get an ice cream or whatever. And obviously that wasn't always feasible, but just that check-in time for us, it meant that our staff knew that we were communicating with each other and it made them feel like there would be less uncertainty because they knew that both their managers were on the same page and um, that everything that happened in the morning with me, I would let him know about so that he could continue the the good work and organization and anything that had come up. And likewise, he let me know what had happened for him the night before and what I, I needed to work on. And, and also we would talk, we'd then bring our staff back for about 10 minutes before I would leave and ask them how they were and what they needed. And that was a very short amount of time. And we had like 12 people that were working directly for us and we had to do dishes and start dinner and, and all of it. But just that 10 minutes of what do you need? We're both here for you and we're both listening. It really changed the um, culture of our particular workplace. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was just going to add to that. So I think that's really good. So I think there's two key things there is sort of the going on shift kind of debrief and kind of or information sharing, but then the going off shift information or debrief of what yeah what was important and that sort of going off shift thing can sometimes be really helpful, especially in really trying and difficult situations of giving people sort of a forum for, okay, this is what happened. And oh man, it's really tough because they may not be able to share that with their families um, or other support. So giving them an opportunity for that too is really nice. Yeah. So a couple more questions here. Um, this is a really personal one, and I totally am in the same boat. And that is, this is my first large disaster. So how long can I expect to go through envy, feelings of isolation, FOMO, anxiety, worry? 
how long, I mean, that's the question we're all asking right now, but mm-hmm. in terms of our emotional coping, um, if we've never been in this scale of disaster before, um, what would you say, Heather? Oh, that's a tough one. And I think it's tough because we don't know how long this disaster is going to last, right? I would say any reaction right now during this disaster is a completely normal reaction because this is an abnormal event, right? So any reaction, whether you are feeling numb and no distress at all, or you're feeling complete and utter distress that feels somewhat overwhelming, both of those are totally normal. And both of those are to be completely expected. And actually, there's some people out there who might feel both. Right. There's some days I'm overwhelmed and incredibly distressed. There's sometimes I feel totally numb and in disbelief. And is this actually happening? Right. Because I'm still going to work. I'm still doing these things uh, and kind of feels like complete disbelief. Um, and so I, I would love to give you a timeline of, oh, yes, you know, six months afterwards, all your symptoms will be resolved and everything will be fine. And I honestly, I can't, I can't do that, right? Because we actually don't know when is this disaster going to be over. Uh, we do know, like, to expect that uh, after disasters, many people, anniversaries, those things are always kind of hard. Many people will experience symptoms afterwards. Uh, that doesn't mean, again, that that's abnormal or that you shouldn't uh, experience those things. However, you know, if this is something that's inf- interfering with someone's functioning and day-to-day life, like I find it really hard to connect to other people, I'm not enjoying things I used to enjoy, I'm starting to have some of these sort of suicidal thoughts uh, or engaging in a lot of problematic behaviors maybe I thought I was done with, uh, I was over like self-harm or substance use, then yeah, absolutely reach out uh, and get some additional support to get through. But again, I just really emphasize this, all of those reactions, they are completely normal. They are completely understandable. And many people are going through them at the same time. Uh, And that there's lots of supports out there that are already being developed for you and for folks like say the BC psychologists and there's going to be more uh every day I'm getting emails about new services that people are developing and they're trying to roll out and that kind of thing and I wish I had more certainty for you and unfortunately I do not and and that is the reality of this is an unprecedented uh disaster and situation thank you Heather um, I wonder if you would, I, I'd like to just invite you, if you feel comfortable, to just talk a little bit about your daily routine right now and what you do, what you're doing to cope. Because um, you, have, you, have a, you have a child, um, mm-hmm. you have a family, you have to go to work every day and you work at the hospital, which is the sort of the center of the bad stuff happening right now. Um, mm-hmm. And and. I'm guessing you either are taking public transit or getting there some other way. So just talk me through that. If you're, Uh, if you're willing to. (laughs) Sure. Sure. I think at least what I do and I mental health, uh, I mean, it's always stressful um, and it's always kind of demanding where I do, they sort of, I do try and have sort of my morning uh, routine which again, it includes, at least for me, is my clothes have got to be set out <laughs> the night before, uh, whether it's I uh, have some sort of work scrubs or whatever. Those things, my lunch, 
work clothes, that's all got to be set out the night before because I just need things to be as calm as possible uh, in the morning. And I try and sort of, we go through the same routine each morning. Um, When I do daycare drop off, of course, I feel a lot of guilt and I feel a lot of anxiety about that. And I, a lot of envy of, I wish I was kind of home. And it's really tough when my daughter says things where like, you know, uh, I really miss you or I don't want to go. I want to stay home of, oh man, (laughs) that guilt is really tough. Um, And yet I also remind myself sometimes of like, she doesn't know that uh, this is this coronavirus thing happening. She's just just being a two-year-old kind of thing. And it is harder with uh, older kids where they do know and they are feeling anxious. But I, so I try and really spend some quality time where there's no cell phones, there's no screens. I'm just, it's all about her and kind of be present in that moment and having those moments before uh, she goes to daycare as well as after when she's home and before we go to bed uh, at work. It's, I control uh, what I can control, right? Uh, Yeah, I can't control sort of decisions of whether I'm at home or not. Although I guess there is some influence there and there is some choice, I guess, there. Um, But it's sort of, okay, I can control of, all right, how much I wash my hands um, and kind of following these guidelines and sort of doing the best I can. And yet, you know, I'm not going to be able to control necessarily who gets uh, coronavirus, what their severity is going to be. I'm not going to be able to control that. And sort of just recognizing that and kind of not going into those sort of helpless moments or those worst case scenarios of just, we're not there yet. Whenever that worst case scenario happens, if it even does happen, all right, I will cope then, right? I know, I know I've been through, been through some shit before. I coped through that, right? Maybe not how I might have wanted to, but I've learned from those. I'm going to deal with this with as much kind of grace as I possibly can. Grace is my middle name. (laughs) So (laughs) um, I try and remind myself, all right, I will get through this. I'm also learning and an imperfect human being. Um, And just trying to take it a little bit day by day. And then also when I get home, I do have a going home routine. And this has been one really forged <laughs> through a lot of hardship as well. Of I can really bring a lot of baggage home uh, with me, whether it's other people's distress or my own distress or that kind of stuff. So I make sure as I have this visual point on my commute home of this is my baggage drop off, right? Because there's so much to worry about at work where it's like, all right, I will worry about it when I pass this visual place. I will worry about that again. I will pick up this emotional baggage when I pass this place. But right now, all those suitcases, all that bags, I'm dropping it off for now. I will be dedicated. I will worry and do whatever I need to do and problem solve about it when I come past this point again, uh, when I go on my way to work. But right now, I am dropping off that baggage and I'm going home. And this is now my routine. And I incorporate podcasts in that as well. Um And but I also have sort of a visual drop off zone of this is my this is my emotional baggage drop off zone. And I will worry about these things and make decisions about these things when I come back to it on my commute. in. so Mm -hmm. that's another thing I find particularly helpful. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Um, And I just wanted to ask, I'm poking you a little bit here, but how do you cope Mm -hmm. when you're at work, when you're around other people and. 
the uncertainty is there. <laughs> it's hard. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with fairies, right? Is there are some days where I'm like, I got this. And then there are some days where I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> right? <laughs> and I am a human being as well. And I want to tell you that I use, you know, all these lovely coping skills every day. And there's some days where, you know, it's really tough. It's really tough for me. And, you know, uh, I find it really hard. And, so, for example, like yesterday, it was just it was this benign phone call of someone talking to me about like, oh, this thing is canceled. Um, and, oh, how are you doing with sort of social isolation and working from home? And I kind of explained, I'm, I'm not working from home. I'm in every day. And this program that got canceled was actually related to sort of a medical condition that I have. And someone was like, and this person, again, with best of intentions, like, oh, my God, like, wow, you're working and you've got this condition, like, holy crap, how are you doing this? And, you know, you really shouldn't be working. And, you know, this is ridiculous. And um, then also, I think was saying, and you're working at a hospital. Oh, my gosh, I was watching this documentary about New York hospitals yesterday, and then was going into this story where, like, it just wanted, again, they were being so nice and the best of intentions, but man, it just made me want to burst into tears. And I also felt really angry at them as well, where <sighs> luckily, uh, my emotional cup was more full at that point. So I kind of just was like, okay, yeah, thank you. And sort of quickly, quickly exited that phone call. Could I have done that sort of as graciously if, you know, I was sleep deprived and hungry and that sort of thing? Probably not. Right. And I think that would have been understandable and that would have not been how I would have liked to handle that situation. And yet I think I also would have given myself a break if I had been rude and I had abruptly hung up. Um, so, yeah, coping throughout the day is I do. Man, I really do uh, go to bed early, even though I hate going to bed early. Uh, and I just I try and focus on, OK, this person probably didn't mean that maliciously. They're probably. They're probably not evil. Uh, they probably didn't mean that. Yeah, Joanne, man, that I did not like what she said there, but you know what? That's not her, right? And so sometimes trying to take a perspective and that doesn't mean that my feelings are not valid and that my feelings don't make sense. Uh, and I can feel mad and I can feel upset about that and I can feel frustrated. And yet I can also recognize there's a whole lot of other stuff going on and this situation's complicated and that person feels scared too, or that person's trying to be helpful. Man, that wasn't helpful, but I can understand they were at least trying. Thanks for sharing that story. And you know, Heather, I, I think that what you just said doesn't negate any of the tips that you've shared. It actually proves that you're working through them yourself. And one of them was to give yourself grace and compassion, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, none of us are doing this perfectly. Um, there's no way that we could. And I think because coronavirus is such a um, unknown threat still at this point, it's, it's hard to let go of the fear that we're going to do things wrong. But we can do, there are a lot of things we can do for ourselves and for others. And so thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. I'll just add one other thing because I think yeah. I sometimes struggle sometimes with regrets of like, Oh, I messed that up. Oh, I wish I didn't act that way. Or, Oh, I wish I'd done this differently. And I used to kind of really see it as a bit of a negative of like, Oh, I should have done things differently. And now someone that kind of helped me reframe that of like, Hey, wait a second. Like anytime you're feeling that that's growth, right? Like 
if you had always done everything perfectly uh, and had kind of no regrets or sort of wish you'd done something differently, then you hadn't actually learned anything ever. And so the fact that you're like, oh, I wish I'd done things differently now, is showing a whole lot of growth, right? And that you're different now and that you're learning new skills and, you know, you've got some values here that are really important. And so that has sometimes helped me be a bit more compassionate towards myself when I'd sometimes have regrets of, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. I would do that so differently now of, hey, wait a second, that's a huge strength. It really shows, one, I'm connected to my values, and two, I've learned something from that situation. So that at least has helped me sometimes keeping with some of that regret and wishing I'd done things differently. Yeah, and we're going to end on this note, but um, Heather is available for questions as well. We're going to post the recording of this on the website. Um, the PowerPoint is available as a PDF in the handout section, as well as the resources, and all of those will be up on our website as well for you. But it just reminds me what you were saying about growth, and that is it comes back to these sort of hidden strengths we have as frontline workers. One of them is that we are on the front line. So we're seeing things that might not be in the news yet, or we're seeing situations um, and we're figuring out how to deal with the challenges um, in a way that might be helpful for other people. So in fact, we're, we might be the first to be exposed to something, but we're also the first to test out new solutions and to try things that might actually help. And so sometimes when I think about that, I think, all right. Um, yeah, hopefully that was helpful. Um, Heather, you were extremely helpful today. And I just want to say thank you for all of your experience and your stories and the tips that you shared. They were very practical and concrete and well thought out. And, um, Again, people are asking about the website, and I will send that out to you right now. It is just um, hsa-bc.ca, and there's a section there. I'll, I'll pull it up right now. Um, on coronavirus resources, all of the videos, all of the handouts, all of the notes will all be available for you there. And Heather, thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's right. been a real honor. And take care out there, everybody. Thanks for continuing to show up despite your anxieties. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues, and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do, and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca, and you can find COVID-19-specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm, stay safe, 
stay strong. <laughs>